This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Fifty years ago this week, Colorado passed the first law in the nation to liberalize restrictions on abortion. And at a time when Republicans were in control, the move remains deeply divisive half a century later. The other day, the group American Right to Life sent state legislators a letter denouncing the 1967 law. One of the sponsors of the bill back then was a Democratic state representative who went on to become governor, Dick Lamb. Governor, welcome. Thank you. You were a freshman lawmaker in 1967. What prompted you to bring this issue up? Yeah, it was I, – I, I could not even – when I walked into the place, I did not know where the, the men's room was. And I, I mean it was really um, a magic time in my life. It was one of those moments that everything goes goes right. But um, Dottie and I had spent some time in South America. And that's your wife. Um, yes. And we – had run into the, the fact that back in those days, it was 63, we were mountain climbing in, in, the, in South America. And that uh, 25% of hospital beds in South America, we were told, were, the, uh, were filled with women with botched abortions. Hmm. And that mortality and the morbidity rate in South America was just uh, humongous. And so... Uh, that caught my interest. And so when I got in a position in 1967 to be a freshman legislator, it it, it really was very much on my mind. Um, so, I, I mean, at the time, did you have a sense about how common botched abortions were in Colorado back no, then? No idea. No idea. Actually, I had never run into – neither Dottie or I had run into the abortion issue. Um, I guess in high school, we had a couple of girls that would, you know, go visit their grandmother for nine months or something, but um, not, not, not any, any individual thing. But um, it, it did it, – it was a, an idea whose time had come. What specifically did the bill set out to do? Well, the, the bill actually said that, you, um, that abortion was um, – allowable when you had rape, incest, fetal deformity, mental health, and physical health. So there was a, just a list of fairly restrictive uh, – so it still was a very restrictive abortion law, but um, it was uh, a first step in a, in a long journey. And, and this is six years before the Supreme Court ruling in Roe v. Wade, that landmark yeah. decision. What had been the law up until then? Well, abortion was – was except for when the life of the mother uh, was at stake, and even that was in some in some question. So it was a fairly restrictive abortion uh, abortion law. Although all states had fairly restrictive abortion laws, you know what what really happened is that we you know we hit a tide that we didn't fully recognize was there. Um, what you do know, you mean? Well, this all of a sudden society was in the process of changing its mind on a lot of these. I mean, remember that even contraception was um, was 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 controversial. Mm -hmm. uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, after all, was there were two states, Massachusetts and Connecticut, that wouldn't allow married couples to use contraceptives. I mean, this is just outrageous. The the um, the religious a small part of the religious community asserting their beliefs on all the rest of us, and the Supreme Court threw out the the birth control ban in and in Griswold versus Connecticut, and then then we came along, and um, some of the field had already been plowed. Yeah, and of course things were changing. It was the the late sixties. Things were changing in a way that that the country hadn't really experienced before. And you were right there 
as a lawmaker at that time, all this was happening. Exactly. Um, I, I sometimes get credit for things that I was just in the right place at the right time. I find it really interesting that your bill passed with bipartisan support. It, it had to because Republicans were in control and you had a Republican governor. Uh, but as they do today, emotions still ran high. As we said just this week, opponents, Colorado-based American Right to Life, sent a letter to legislators in light of the anniversary to raise awareness about the victims of abortion in Colorado and the 500,000 lives lost since that date. That is Leslie Hanks, who signed the letter. You saw a copy, uh, which asked elected officials to, quote, acknowledge the victims and pledge to fight for a reversal of Lamb's unrighteous decree. How would you compare the opposition today to 1967? Well, in 1967, we sort of um, caught society off guard. I mean, no, this, you know, you could hardly uh, say the word abortion in polite company um, for a long time. I guess by 67, that had changed, but um, it was, uh, it was not that volatile an issue because passing a liberalized abortion law was sort of beyond the, 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 the realm of thought. And, um, so, uh, but what was amazing is when I started taking this bill around to a variety of people, uh, legislators, sort of in- incredible how many people signed up. Was it more of a, of a medical concern that there was support, or was it more of an ideological concern? Because you see, of course, today things are, are a little bit a little bit skewed or different. We ha- um, had this wonderful Republican uh, senator, John Birmingham. And um, he had run a birth control bill two years before I got into the legislature. And so there was um, the, the, the um, idea that you could talk about reproductive issues and talk freely um, had, had sort of – John Birmingham had, had gone – had plowed the way uh, on that one. But um, it was, I think, the idea that you would – require unwilling women to have unwanted children was was just simply an idea that was had had dawned on society so the, if the vote wasn't purely partisan then what lines did it break down on Religi- religious, lines. religious lines. Yeah, religious lines. In fact, when John Birmingham and I started getting co-sponsors and, you know, when we introduced the bill, there's 100 people in the legislature. We had 65 co-sponsors. We had a majority of Republicans and a majority of the Democrats. So it was um, – that's what made this moment so magical. And the Republican Party, to their great credit and John Love, to his great credit – you know, they withstood the, the criticism and um, they went ahead and did what was right. Did the law lead to fewer illegal abortions and more legal ones then? You know, it's, it, nobody really can tell that um, for sure. Um, the, it, it, it probably, it probably did. But there is a an argument that once abortion became um, – uh, you know, and it depends on whether you're talking about Colorado or nationwide. I see. But all of a sudden, once once Colorado, three three months after Colorado passed this law, California, North Carolina, I mean, the dominoes started to fall. And that was happening nationally, surrounding the issue of abortion at mm-hmm. the time. But but Colorado really was at the forefront. Oh yeah, we were. We sure were. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking to Dick Lamb. He served as Colorado governor from 1975 to 1987, though earlier as freshman as a freshman state lawmaker, he sponsored a bill loosening restrictions on abortion in Colorado. And that was 50 years ago this week. 
As we said, Governor, Colorado was the first to state to liberalize restrictions on abortions, uh, on abortion. What happened in other states? You say the dominoes began to fall. Uh, did you see things playing out very similar uh, as, as they happened in Colorado or were there differences? You know, I was invited to a, um, a bunch of states. I was invited to New York. I was invited to Texas. Um, and and what was I what was I invited for? Yes, <laughs> I believe certainly it wasn't on any techno, techno, technology uh, information. It was the fact that I had touched fire and survived. So it was really interesting because I would testify in these committees, and people would look and they would say, "Well, you can you can touch this issue, and it doesn't mean automatic defeat." Now, later, the Supreme Court ruled in Roe v. Wade, probably one of the best known of the court's decisions, that a woman has a constitutional right to an abortion and that states could set some conditions in the second and third trimesters. Colorado had acted legislatively, uh, but this, of course, was judicial action. Do you think one avenue was better than the other on this issue? That is such a sophisticated question that is, you know, essentially unanswerable. But there is an argument and one that maybe when I look back on these days that I will agree with, that it would have been better to allow the states to do this state by state. There is something in the opposition that – and it's a, it's a valid point that nine people made the decision for the whole United States on a very sensitive subject, the Supreme Court. Um, you know, just made became a super legislature. But it is the court of the highest court in the land. It is it, it, its it, role is to make decisions on these. Exactly. I mean, I'm not apologizing for them, and I'm glad they did it. But just the dynamics of the thing are saying there is an argument that if we would have allowed this to go state by state, it would have much more grassroots um, support. And so you think maybe there would have been a more tempered opposition? To- yeah. When I say support, I mean I, that that. People would have – the other side would have felt they had their day in the legislature, not that they are in court, but their day in the legislature and that the – you know, Americans are pretty good. Um, we, we live uh, on this – the majority vote counts and so, you know, and a lot of us didn't like this last presidential election but, you know, we accept it. That's what being American is about. Now, of course, the argument of opponents has long been that if you believe abortion is a crime, then it's not an issue of choice. Again, anti-abortion activist Leslie Hanks. We consider abortion murder, and we cannot condone that. Our country was founded on the notion that we have a God-given, inalienable right to life that cannot be infringed. Does any part of you identify with those words from her? You know that you know God does not appear in our Constitution. It's really an interesting thing. And, you know, and religion is only mentioned twice in the Constitution, and that's to prohibit you can't have a religious test for office and things like that. And so the, our Constitution was written in a time when sectarian strife and people were killing each other because of their religion, and we really formed a government that said we all ought to be able to follow our own conscience. And the fact is, most Americans don't feel that abortion is is murder. Most religion Religions don't feel that abortion is murder. Now, Leslie Hanks does, and I respect her opinion. That's fine. And there but are many people that do feel that way. What's the compromise in this area? What's the compromise? The only compromise I can ever see is that we're all free to follow our own conscience. Hmm. You know, if you're going to equate a month-old zygote with a human being and say that that takes precedent over the woman that's carrying it, I'm just going to disagree. 
in, in any case, you were in the legislature and then became governor for three terms. So you were involved in countless issues and debates similar to this. But how often does your role in the 67 abortion law come up when you see people today? Is, is it a main part of what people remember about your term? Well, it's come up a lot this last month because uh, because it's the anniversary. <laughs> but not no, it really does not come up. And I don't – you know, occasionally I will have somebody come up to me and – um, and thank me. I mean, society women that are well known will just sort of draw me aside and say thank, thank, thank me, and tell me their story. And uh, you know, it was, it was just terrible back in the good old days because I'm more convinced than ever that the law doesn't say if an abortion takes place; it just says where. It can be done in a back alley or it can be done in a nice uh, facility. And how many women told me these terrible stories? This one woman was made sterile by an illegal abortion um, and and had tears in her eyes. So, yes, it does. It still does come up in a variety of different contexts. Did you think the issue would remain so divisive? No, not at, no, not at all. I did, it, 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 I'm really surprised. Now I'm looking back on it. I don't know why I was so surprised because, um, you know, Les, Leslie Hanks reflects, um, you know, she has the courage of her convictions. And um, I, I, I appreciate that. It's just that in a, in a democracy, how do we solve a problem like this? You know, you just you, – you just, hey, most of us believe that, that a woman sh- should have more control over her reproductive functions and that you should not um, have uh, – force a pregnancy on her. In, in, and finally, in the last few, few seconds that we have, has your, your thought changed in terms of the, the, the other views out there? Have you met people that have come up to you and said things that, you're, okay, let's talk about this? Well, I guess what my – you know, when I thought – when we passed the bill, um, we never we, – we didn't have the woman's movement. We didn't have the idea a woman should control her own reproductive functions. I think that most of my change in thinking is that – um, that that how restrictive my own law was, and that it was really um, there was it was still too narrow. Liberal at the time, yeah, but but in, only in context, yeah. And so, um, but I have not had any second thoughts that um, we did the right thing. Governor, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Dick Lamb served as Colorado governor from 1975 to 1987. Earlier, as a freshman state lawmaker, he sponsored a bill loosening restrictions on abortion in Colorado. That was 50 years ago this week. A small group of farmers in the Grand Valley of Colorado won't plant some of their fields this summer. It's an experiment called water banking, and it could help farmers and everyone who depends on the Colorado River get through future water shortages. Grand Valley water manager Mark Harris is leading the pilot program. He's in our Grand Junction studio. Mark, welcome. Good morning. Water banking basically means you want to save this water, to bank it in Lake Powell. That's often called the savings account of the Colorado River. There have been similar programs east of the Continental Divide in the metro area and on the plains. So what's different about your program? The the fundamental difference is that we are doing, as you suggest, is that we're attempting to to put water into Lake Powell for a variety of purposes, most eastern Colorado water banking is to firm up an annual supply uh, of water 
for a municipality or for industrial uses. So uh, they're, they're quite different. And I think over the course of the winter, this bifurcation of what water banking is has come to be a little more realized, and it's actually a fairly productive way to separate the thinking in that is we're mostly concerned about uh, avoiding a compact call, keeping water levels up in Lake Powell high enough to continue to produce electricity and so forth, as opposed to being beneficial for one particular uh, industry or municipality. And by compact rule, you know, other states calling up that water because they need it and, and, they, and then they take water away from, from other areas, including Colorado. Is that, that is, correct? That's correct. So is that the essential question that you really want to answer with this pilot project, that you want to see how much water you can, let's say, keep in this savings account uh, that is Lake Powell uh, over a period of time? In With a broad sweep, yes. Okay. Uh, you have to keep in mind that uh, given the fact that these are pilot programs is there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that have a temporary uh, allowance or temporary permission and, and protection uh, from the state of Colorado and from the federal government to try some of these things that have multiple benefit mm-hmm. that there's no long term way to to do them yet. Those are things that have to be done. So our objectives are two number one to investigate the scalability of this idea of rotational fallow, creating conserved consumptive use, which could then indeed be put into Lake Powell. Um, we also want to see if if our organization, uh, the Grand Valley Water Users, could first manage uh, something like that. Is it something that we that we could uh, understand, administer? Uh, deliver on the promises that we made in an agreement like that should we ever make one. We also want to see if there's uh, appreciable interest on the part of farmers to engage in such an activity. So we have a number of objectives uh, that are really primary and uh, preliminary to the ultimate objective of getting that water to Lake Powell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's all it's all part of this this. Uh, pilot project and package, yes. To give people a sense of who uses this water, like you say, you you, you help get water to agri- agricultural producers like peach farmers and Palisades, and you also have a power plant. Uh, there are 10 farmers participating. Uh, was it hard to find those 10 farmers to take part in this new type of uh, experiment? We had, uh, when we began to look at the objectives, uh, we had a number of things that we wanted to try to do. Uh, first off is we had to make sure that we did gauge the scalability of this pilot project, in that if uh, either to mitigate or deal with some sort of a water crisis, uh, you've got to you've got to have quick scalability, and that means that you've got to have something that's attractive, or at least palatable to larger water interests, water users, larger farmers. So we had to set some parameters on what we were looking for, uh, and once we once we did that. Uh, we had to then to establish some of the rules and regulations and contract and see how we would comply with uh, rules and regulations that we put in place to mitigate any unintended negative consequences. Um, because essentially you're getting farmers to not grow what they typically grow. I mean, what what are these farmers not growing and, and doesn't that impact their bottom line? Well, the first thing you have to keep in mind is that farmers want to grow something, and they'll grow something even in the face of lack of profitability. Um, 
what what they're not growing this time is cor- primarily corn, alfalfa, alfalfa mixes, uh, small grains. Now, the reason that their bottom lines are positively, we hope, impacted is that they're paid for their cooperation to uh, and their participation in this program. So it's fundamentally important to realize that any payments that they receive, any payments that the water users receive is for participation. We have pointedly avoided any kind of, of pricing for water. Hmm. That's a long ways down the road. Uh, so this is to understand what a water banking program might look like. And you're paying them essentially not to grow crops and become part of this experiment. They're, what we're paying them for is to not grow crop and to participate in such a way that the water that would have been consumed by those crops remains in the river and finds its way to Lake Powell. But wouldn't the water simply then just go to someone else? I mean, do you expect to see the water level you know, go up a little bit? There, well, that, but... probably this this itty bitty drop in the bucket, ten uh, farmers, yeah, it is probably not going to uh, increase. Uh, what it is is to test the concept. Uh, if you if you took many many of these droplets and you begin to accumulate them into a into a bucket, uh, it can indeed and would indeed make a difference. Um, the a major challenge that you point out is to make sure that those waters are not picked up by somebody else. Now, given our location, uh, we're the we're right on the the Utah Colorado line, so the water that stays in the river, uh, by happy coincidence, really doesn't have anybody to pick it up before it gets to Lake Powell. In that you can't, with Colorado water law uh, currently, that improvements that you make into a system either in efficiency or conservation, is that they have to benefit people that are in Colorado. The benefit of what we're doing is a, is a benefit to the system, the Colorado River system, and therefore, at least from a temporary perspective, is we have the permission to add to the benefit of Lake Powell, which benefits us in Colorado. Right. So if, if you, part of the design of the system is it has to be done in such a way that someone else doesn't get the benefit of that conserved consumptive use. Very critical part of the plan. And that's, of course, something that this experiment is going to continue to look at. Uh, This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mark Harris leads the Grand Valley Water Users Association in western Colorado. And we're talking about an experiment to try to figure out how, in severe drought, Colorado could bank water without hurting farmers or other water users. So how much of a concern is climate change for you when thinking about the Grand Valley's water supplies? Uh, it's of critical importance. Uh, you know, I, from my perspective as the manager of the Grand Valley Water Users, and I'm also a farmer, but we look at climate change in two ways. Uh, I mean, we take seriously the scientifically supported trends that we see. I don't have to get into the discussion of what it's, why it's happening, who's causing it and those things. But growing up in agriculture, we've lived and died by scientific information, research-based information. And that information today shows us that we have to begin to think about the impacts of climate change, which for us on our side of the hill here actually mean a little bit more warmth, perhaps a little bit more moisture, but it comes in the form of rain. And that impacts the uh, runoff dynamics out of that snowpack. So we're, we're concerned about the issues of climate change and those issues will impact us whether we're in a drought or not. 
So we separate climate change from drought, but we take it very seriously. Uh, our growing seasons could indeed be uh, lengthened just a little bit. That will uh, increase the demand for irrigation water and so forth. Uh, and we take it uh, probably uh, as importantly uh, as we do the population population growth pressures that uh, we see on on the river coming from from both sides of, both the, sides. of the mountain. As, as you so, sell this. Uh, as you sell this project to farmers and other stakeholders in the Grand Valley, do you have to be careful about how you, you how much you talk about climate change as a motivator for water banking? Uh, if we if we avoid the political parts of the climate change discussion, is that it's my job and it's our board's job to make sure that we're doing the taking the necessary actions to avoid a potential train wreck. And we have people that are deeply involved in these discussions who remain critical of why we have climate change, how much climate change we have, uh, and all of the political questions that surround it, but that take no exception with the fact that we need to understand what the impacts of climate change and population growth could have on us. So, yes, do you have to be careful how you talk about it? You do, but if you keep the appropriate objectives in mind, uh, the conversation has been quite productive. And it's not to say that everybody's in favor of everything that we that we propose. Um, a big benefit has been that discussion. Uh, and, and that discussion will consider, will continue. I, I understand that uh, you expect to save about 3,500 acre feet of water this year with those 10 farmers. That's enough for about 7,000 households for a year. Uh, those are rough numbers, uh, but the goal isn't to actually send that water to homes. It's to keep the water in the river and in Lake Powell. And yet this isn't just about saving water. I, I, I was interested to know that you also want to save money on this for another use. Can you explain that briefly? Well, absolutely. We have uh, the, the, the way that we position what we're doing uh, is for protection from, from poor planning from protections from not being engaged in uh, the discussions about our future and our water. But we also want to come out of those discussions better than just even. Uh, we, like many irrigation projects in the West, have millions of dollars worth of aging infrastructure that we're always trying to find ways to find uh, ways to repair, replace, rehabilitate, not to operate. We can cover those expenses, but the replacement of many of these very expensive uh, facilities we look for uh, potential revenue streams. So part of what we did in this uh, pilot program was to ensure that the association got something for our efforts beyond what the farmer gets, beyond our expenses, is that there was money that came to us earmarked for infrastructure improvements, uh, which is a major reason to for us to consider our participation in this program. And it also answers a question of equity, is that although a lot of this is about farmers, is obviously we have a lot of people that we serve who aren't farmers and who will never be water bankers. What do they get out of it? Well, that's a fair question. And in addition to protection of their water rights and so forth, they're getting some uh, additional investment in the infrastructures that they too uh, have a vested interest in. So it's it's an interesting and an important component and uh, one that folks, when they call upon us, other irrigators and uh, other water managers call, it's a, it's a point that they always want to talk about is how does that fit into this? And it's something you'll keep looking at. Mark, thanks for joining us. 
My pleasure. Mark Harris leads the Grand Valley Water Users Association. He joined us from Grand Junction to talk about a pilot program to bank Colorado River water by paying farmers to fallow fields this year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A Colorado State University political science professor named John Strayer is retiring this year. Yesterday, he was honored on the floor of the U.S. Senate by one of his former students. Congratulations, Dr. Strayer. Thank you for your service to Colorado State University, to the state of Colorado, and thank you for impacting the lives of so many people. And from this United States senator, thanks for being that life-changing spark. I yield the floor. That's Republican Senator Cory Gardner on the floor of the U.S. Senate, one of the more than a thousand CSU students who've interned at the Colorado legislature under the close watch of Strayer, who supervised the program for 37 years. Professor, welcome. Well, thank you. Did you have a chance to hear that speech yesterday? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, it was read. There were there were festivities in the state capitol. Uh, uh, midday, and uh, there were a number of folks who spoke, and there were some proclamations read. So I, I did hear the script. Yes, I did, and uh, and I have a copy of it. So, so, so how did the words "life changing spark" sit with you? Well, you know, I <laughs> that that's a tough one for me to say. You know, I, I think the experience that these students have had, and I've been a part of it. I've organized it, and I've watched them. And quite frankly, I consider all of them my kids. Really, I, I, I love them dearly, and they've they've kept me going. Uh, but they've got their own spark too. I, I think if you if you bring them down there um, and spend a lot of time with them. Uh, in the capital, uh, get to know them. They get to know each other. They get to know the political process. They get to know the members, public policy. Uh, it te- it tends to light their fire. Uh, whether I provide a spark, perhaps so. But I think the the fire is really with the, really with the students, and I'm I'm enormously proud of them. And along with Gardner, your students include several current and former state legislators and lots of local officials. Former Democratic Governor Bill Ritter wasn't an intern, but he took a class from you. Uh, why he did it, indeed. Why is it so important to you for these students to get experience at the state capitol? Well, you know, it's it's, it's one thing to uh, to hand them a bunch of literature to read about. Uh, what we have written, political scientists and others have written about politics. So you can sit and read it, understand it to some extent. Uh, you can be in a classroom as well where you talk about it back and forth. They listen to our lectures. Um, but there's a dimension that is missing in all of that. And, and that is when you when you walk into the real political environment, the state capital in this instance, um, you're, you're mixing with real legislators. You're watching – the bills go through. You're watching the dynamics of committee hearings. You're hearing the debate on the floor. You're interacting with with the lobbyists, with members of the staff, with the media. Uh, you're 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 right in the middle of it all. And they among the things they'll do is interact with constituents, so <laughs> they get a real life view of of the public out there. Um, some of whom are um, serious and know a lot about public policy when they call in, and some who don't know anything. Uh, you know, so again, you can read about it and you can listen to people like me talk about it. But once you get down there, you get in the mix. It just 
it it takes on a whole new dimension. And you didn't just teach these students or give them that opportunity. You drove them back and forth from Fort Collins to the Capitol in a van twice a week. Uh, I've heard that there were some estimates that it totaled 140,000 miles over over your time there. And these were college kids. Uh, what were those rides like? <laughs> there is no better form of comedy than than uh, being in a 12-passenger van. And even earlier on, we were using the 15-passenger vans, which were dangerous. But anyway... Yeah, I mean, they're alive, they're talking, they talk about themselves, they talk about their family, they talk about their husbands, wives, girlfriends, boyfriends mostly because they're young. Um, They talk about what's going on down in the Capitol, you hear their talk about what they've done over the weekend, it's just... It's just riotously entertaining and funny. And they get to know each other real well. You see a community develop every year. uh, A community develops. um, They get pretty close to each other, right? They they, they what? They get pretty close to each other, I, I assume. Well, they get so close to each other that I can remember at least three instances when marriages came out of it. Really? So, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now, now uh, are all these pretty gung ho political junkies the, these uh, students? I mean, are they looking for a career like Bill Ritter or Cory Gardner? Do you see that at that young age? You know, I think some of them uh, have that image, or have that vision, but they don't all have that vision. Um, I take seniors primarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for some of them, they've been they've been here for three and a half years, four years, four and a half years sometimes, and they're just looking for something else. To, they want to get off of campus, and it looks like a like like an interesting adventure for them. Um, most of them, not all of them, most of them are political scientists. I get some, I've had some from engineering, uh, journalism, uh, veterinary medicine. Steve Johnson was a, uh, an intern of mine years ago, current county commissioner here in Lamar County, and he mm-hmm. served in both the House and the Senate. So they come from a, a variety of different backgrounds, mostly though uh, political science. So you know, they tend to have an interest in public policy. They're they're politically attentive, but I wouldn't say that they're all looking at it as a launch pad for elective politics necessarily. Do you get a spidey sense, you know, kind of with some of those? Like, I, I see that one. That one's going to go places or, or? Well, e- you can sense sometimes a level of ambition, <laughs> okay. political ambition. Uh, and you sense that. Uh, in a in a lot of different ways, in what they say, what they what they talk about, the things that they're interested in, their behavior generally, you can get a sense that some of them are uh, they see them they see themselves on an upward and onward path. Now, pol- politicians aren't held uh, exactly in the highest esteem these days. Uh, do students sometimes come out of these internships uh, d- disillusioned about politics? Um. There's a little bit of that, but but overall, I would <clears throat> excuse me, I would say no. Um, the one thing that I do notice, you know, I ask him at the end, and I'm, meet, I'm meeting with him again shortly as a wrap up mm. uh, for this particular legislative session. And among the questions that I'd like to talk to him about and have them write about in their final paper is is Colorado in good hands uh, with a hundred hundred legislators down there, and they almost always say yes. They think. They think so. They don't necessarily agree, even with the members that they're working with. Uh, they don't necessarily agree with some of the decisions and the policy directions and so forth. But, but if you ask them, do you think these people are doing their best, uh, really do have uh, the public's best interest at heart, uh, they generally say, yeah, they, they, 
they they think so. E- even if they think some policies <laughs> may be misguided, they they don't come away thinking that you have uh, a bunch of self-serving rogues down there. It's quite the reverse, quite now, the reverse. Now, what about you? Of course, you have this bird's eye view of, of the Capitol. You're there you know, every couple of days type of thing. What are your thoughts on, on is, the, is the state in good hands with current legislature? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, I, I don't I'm not on board with all the policies down there. I've got my own preferences. I've got my own policy predispositions and, and leanings, clearly. A lot of what I see down there I wish wasn't happening. You know, there are bills that are passing that I don't like and bills that are are being postponed indefinitely in committee that I wish would, would go forward. But setting that aside, I'm kind of with the students. I think the people down there really, really care, are really trying to do the best. And one of the, one of the manifestations for me in all of this is that the members down there are just wonderful. They treat our kids wonderful. They give them a good experience. They care very much about their education. Um, and I think very highly of them in that regard, even though some of them have policy preferences quite at odds with my own. What is the single best memory you're going to take away from the state house? Um... I it, that that that's hard to say. I'd, I'd turn it around and, and put it a little differently. What am I going to? What am I looking back? I'm going to miss the people. I'm going to miss these kids dearly. I've been thinking about retiring for a number of years, and at the end of each one, I think, "Wow, what a wonderful batch of kids! I can do it again with another batch." Uh, this time, it's, I finally decided on a, for, for reasons of age, among other things, it's, it's time to go. I've been. I have very good friends with the staff down there, uh, the lobby corps. A lot of them, matter of fact, a goodly number of the lobby corps are my former students, and they're doing they're doing very very well. Um, the, the The memory was that will always stay with me is just these kids, and I've got pictures on pictures and pictures of them. Uh, we always take a composite. One of the things we do at the end of every legislative session is I have them over to the house. Uh, we, we have anywhere from 20 to 35 at a time in a, in a given session, and we have them over the house. We did it just, just last week. Uh, my wife, bless her soul, cooks breakfast for them. They remember that. They remember her. Um, you know, I don't call them my kids uh, by accident. Uh, you get to know them. You get to bond with them. Uh, I hear from students that have been in the program 10, 20, 30 years ago. And they, and yeah, they'll, they remember course, it. Yeah. They, they remember it, and you remember it as well. For Fresh, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. You betcha. Thank you. John Strayer is retiring from Colorado State University after 50 years as a professor of political science and 37 years directing the school's State House Internship Program. Police shootings have left an impression on Denver comic book creator Alan Brooks. He wanted to write something about the issue, but from a fresh perspective. So he added some science fiction. In his graphic novel series, The Burning Metronome, characters described as explorers are stuck in a strange world of unfamiliar beings called humans. There are six issues altogether coming out this year, and the first focuses on police shootings and race relations. He spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner in January. Alan, welcome to the program. 
Thank you. Why take on the issue of excessive force and race in this issue? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's a very present thing on the national, you know, the national radar. But I, I feel like uh, sci-fi and art at its highest usually resonates with something, you know, that, that is real in life, like some real issues. And since this is a present issue, I felt like uh, the best way to sort of attack it is to sort of, you know, put it in the story and kind of explore it from a different perspective. You are African-American. Was it cathartic to do this for you? Uh, you know, I think in some ways, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've obviously had some experiences with it, but I, I think because it's become such a national thing now to try to explore from different perspectives. So it was important to me to not just explore from my own perspective and sort of to treat it in the way that a journalist would. So like, uh, you know, in the writing of the story, I talk with uh, friends of mine who are police officers to get their perspective. And then I did a little research on Blue Lives Matters and, you know, those kind of things to get all those kind of perspectives and try to work it into the story. I want to ask you about those conversations with friends of yours who are in law enforcement in a bit, but you describe The Burning Metronome, this series, as a, quote, murder mystery graphic novel with supernatural undertones. What's the Cliff Notes version of the first issue, just to ground listeners in this story before I ask you more about creating it? Uh, well, basically, uh, there's a guy who wakes up in a house, doesn't know how he got there, and we go through this kind of exploration, and as we're talking more you know we learn that he's a police officer and he has to have conversations with the girl he meets in the house about some of the decisions he's made and that sort of leads to sort of a climactic ending you know huh uh okay to these conversations then with friends of yours of of different perspectives different walks of lives how did they shape the story that you came up with well i think um if you're not a police officer like it's easy to sort of be to have your critique be without uh, a sense of the, the feeling of danger or fear that they might have. So in talking to people who are in those experiences or who are having to go into places where they don't know if they're going to be killed, um, it was important for me to understand what things they have to consider. And then with those in mind, how they feel about this sort of idea of police brutality coming a lot to the fore in media as a whole. I also think you explore well the regret um, or the the kind of torture, torturous space that they have to live with mm-hmm. after they make the decision yeah. to shoot or to not shoot. Well, thank you, first of all. Oh, you're welcome. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, I mean, you do have to make a snap decision. I don't think being a police officer is an easy job. Uh, I think... Because it's not an easy job, the the idea that any criticism lobbied at police officers is invalid, uh, I think that that's sort of a false way to go, you know, because just just by virtue of the job, you have power over somebody's life or death. So uh, who else should be held to a higher standard than that? You talked about science fiction being at its best when it tackles tough issues. Mm-hmm. Can you give me examples of sci-fi on the screen, on the page, that have inspired you oh, over yeah, the years? Definitely. Uh, what is it in its highest form? Well, uh, Twilight Zone is definitely a big influence. You know, like, they were able to tackle a lot of social issues there uh, really powerfully. I don't think it's any coincidence that the first uh, interracial kiss on television was on Star Trek. 
Ah. You know? Yeah. Uh, it broke a lot of barriers, Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, even on Twilight Zone, they used uh, an all-black cast in one of their first season episodes, which at that time was almost unheard of, you know, for an anthology series of that type. Um, I, I think the beauty of sci-fi is that you can approach these issues from a different perspective. So, like, uh, you can look at it as, like, aliens or people in the future, people in the past, and it takes out the emotional charge, which allows you to see it in just sort of a different context and maybe consider it in ways you might not have. Right. Sci-fi deals, in a way, in metaphor. Mm -hmm. And so if you have, and this is not true of your graphic novel, but if you have tentacled beings Mm -hmm. struggling with whether or not to accept beings that have fewer tentacles, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you get to deal with the the question of acceptance and tolerance and all of that mm-hmm. uh, in a less literal and perhaps less painful way, I think is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. This spring, you hope to release a book of all six issues. That's right. Subsequent ones focus on things like how people manipulate each other, mm-hmm. how insecurities can manifest. Why uh, specifically within sci-fi, are these stories powerful as graphic novels? I think uh, there's a a beautiful visual component with comic books specifically uh, that you don't get in prose novels and you don't get in movies. Uh, The the element is that with comic books, the reader controls the speed. So... uh, Yeah, what do you mean by that? In a sense, like, uh, so if you're watching a movie, uh, the pacing is just there, you know, Uh watching a television show. In a comic book, you're reading it. You determine how long you dwell on these particular aspects. The the reader has to be engaged in a different way. So, like uh, with prose, readers completely like uh, you, you know you come up with the images yourself. So you're there's a level of engagement, uh, but it's more collaborative with comic books. So somebody who's reading a comic book is filling in. They're creating the motion. So there's like you know a number of pictures in the comic book. But the reader themselves are creating the motion in between, like, those panels. And uh, I think there's just a different kind of involvement and engagement. Yeah, it's interesting. The rhythm is determined by the reader. I do want to ask about the title of this series, The Burning Metronome, Alan Brooks. We are speaking with the Denver comic book creator. What does it mean, uh, the, the Burning Metronome? Well, it's sort of an abstract meaning. I, I mean, uh, I like the idea of running out of time. Uh, and, you know, a metronome keeps time, and if it's on fire, of course, <laughs> and then uh, then the time's burning up on you. And you know, I mean, uh, any 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 story with a, a drama or anything has a, a ticking clock. You know, where things are running out, you have to get it done in this amount of time. You know, and so just the idea of the burning metronome and times running out kind of creates a an, an air of drama there. You made the first issue available online last year. Yes. What kinds of reactions did you get? to this storyline about uh, police shootings? You know, it's been really positive. Uh, I think the balance that I tried to strike in telling the different perspectives in the story came through. So, uh, Did your law enforcement friends read in? Yeah, yeah. And they gave me positive feedback, which I wasn't sure if they would, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, nerve-wracking to have them read it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they felt like it was uh, fair, you know, and uh, entertaining. Like they really, and they told me they were looking forward to other issues and, uh, upcoming issues of the book, stuff like that. So, And the issues that they'll deal with. Yeah. Issues in every sense of the word. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me.
Ryan Warner spoke with Denver comic book writer Alan Brooks in January. He collaborated with illustrator Dion Harris and Longmont designer Matt Strackbean for the graphic novel series The Burning Metronome, being released this year. You can see artwork from the first issue at cprnews.org. That's our show. Thanks to Michael Hughes, Matt Hers, Andrew Dukakis, Rachel Esterbrook, and Michelle P. Fulcher. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters, and I'm at Heffel N. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. Hold up. 